I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week, we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And in season two, we told you all the secrets about Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars. For season three, we're introducing you to the women that built, got burned by, and ultimately changed the alcohol industry. Make sure you add us on social media, at a tap on the wrist. We are so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to a tap on the wrist podcast. We are so excited tonight. We have two guests with us, so we want to welcome them. Uh, We have Rachel and Leah from Hashtag History Podcast. Welcome, ladies. Uh, Rachel and Leah just started a brand new season of their podcast, but we are so excited they took the time to come over and join us this season um, and give us a story about women in alcohol. So if you guys want to introduce yourselves to listeners who haven't listened to your podcast before and just tell us a little bit about yourselves. Hi. Hi. Hello. We're super happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Of course. Thank you for joining us. Of course. So we are, I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. (laughs) And we are Hashtag History. We're a history podcast that covers history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. So we've covered things like Chappaquiddick. Uh, we've covered Jack the Ripper, Singing the Titanic, Salem Witch Trials. We've even covered the history of Disneyland. And Love then, it. yeah. And then each week we have a cocktail tailored or paired with that week's episode. So, for example, for the Sinking of the Titanic episode, we had a blue colored drink that had a huge piece of ice in it that represented <laughs> the iceberg that the ship hit, and. <laughs> We always try to like tie our cocktails somehow to the episode that we are um, diving into. Or like for another example is Chappaquiddick episode. We had a Rose Kennedy themed cocktail. Yeah. I love yeah. it. They actually created a cocktail or came up with a cocktail for this episode. Mm. We'll get to that in a little while. We did. And we're yes. really excited for it. Yeah. yeah. It looks really pretty. <laughs> right. You know, I think that's one thing, Vanessa and I, since we are an alcohol history podcast, one would think we would drink weekly <laughs> and we don't. You don't. Yeah, I know. I you never, you don't say it on your podcast, but I just assumed you guys are sipping some wine yeah. while you're recording. <laughs> yeah, no, we st- we started this season. We'll like have a drink. I think Beautiful. we had a drink for every episode. We were like, we should we should start. We're an alcohol totally. podcast. <laughs> we, we need to start this. Even yeah. if you just have yeah. a glass of wine, it, it makes yeah. the recording more fun. I can, it's, maybe this is bad. I can tell the difference when we've had a drink with a recording and when we haven't. Yeah. <laughs> and the ones where we had a drink are a lot more fun. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know if that's bad or not, but it's the truth. Yeah. (laughs) So are the alcohol recipes part of your research process? Like what, what is your research process? What does it look like for each episode? Well, so I usually, Leah, am the one that I'm the one that usually dives into the cocktail side of things. And when I can, I try to do a little bit more research or if like we're drinking vodka, I'll try to do a little history on vodka or something like that. A lot of the times it's a lot harder to find 
you know, history of a specific cocktail, especially since we have created a different cocktail where we just recorded episode 63. So we have a different cocktail for 63 episodes. It's <laughs> Most of those cocktails are made in the last decade. It's hard to find a history of these cocktails, right? But yeah. we always try to look at it from a historical perspective. Sometimes that's not so historical if I'm being honest (laughs) (laughs) do you sometimes come up with like your own recipe or usually pre-existing most of them are pre-existing but there have been a few where I I make them up on my own for example for our Salem witch trials episode we had Leah's witch bitch cocktail that she came up with (laughs) yes (laughs) which was delicious it was good congratulations (laughs) it was great and then for the actual like history research component of the episodes. I'll be honest that most of my research almost always starts with Wikipedia. And I know that that's bad. Yes. But <laughs> no, Wikipedia I love great it. For, it's great for getting like a quick summary yes. overview of the topics. We um, like to call it the people source. I love that. Yes. I love that. <laughs> so I refer to the people source. <laughs> <laughs> and then I dive a little deeper from there. Um, A lot of my research comes from history.com or Britannica. And then I really love to watch a documentary or listen to another podcast about the topic. And then like I shared earlier, we focus on history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. So if the topic has anything to do with any of that at all, we are all over it. Yeah. The more scandalous, the better. Yes. (laughs) Love that. I know. I I've listened, I just recently listened to like, was it a two-parter on Heaven's Gate? Oh, yeah. Yes. I think that was from season six, I think, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I I was on a very long road trip and I just like binged. I love that. Thank you. And it was, it was. That story's crazy. Insane. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So if someone has never listened to your podcast, do you have like a go-to episode or a favorite episode they should start with? I find this so hard yeah. um, because it's it's shocking in the in the two and a half years since we've started. Right. It hasn't even been three it's years. Been almost two years. It's been almost two years. So I'm lying. It hasn't even been two and a half. <laughs> we, we are now starting season seven. So we have cranked out a crap ton of episodes in less than two years. So it's really hard to pick just one. But I have to say some of my favorites, my personal favorites have come from the last two seasons, which is season five and six. I think our deep dive into the sinking of the Titanic no pun intended, was all all the pun intended. (laughs) It it was one of my favorites, not only from last season, but I think overall, and it's, it's great because it's a story even history haters have heard of, you know, we just give them a little more knowledge on top of what they have heard of, you know, based on, um, the movie that everyone has seen. (laughs) I concur with all of that. (laughs) I was going to say, I saw that movie so many times when it came out in theaters. Yeah. We might have had a girls' night watching it, drinking recently. I, crying. Crying. Pausing every 15 <laughs> minutes so we could just talk. It took us eight <laughs> hours to get through the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So you went straight through. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. such a long movie. <laughs> um, I was going to say we did a like mini story on The Drunk Baker have you guys heard that story? Oh, from the Titanic? That? So I've listened to a bunch of your episodes. So I, I think I must have missed that one or I don't remember right now. Yeah, it's um, it's one of the episodes with a bunch of little mini stories. And it's about the baker on the Titanic and how he survived. Uh, he actually, you know how Rose and Jack at the end hold on to like the 
like the ship as yeah, it's going yeah. down. Yeah. He did that in real life. Like actually in the movie, when she looks over, she sees a guy uh-huh, and uh-huh. That's, that's supposed to be him. Oh, cool. Um, and he survived and he thinks it's in part because he was really drunk. I, I think we <laughs> did touch on him then because we did talk about someone that in real life, there's evidence that someone that was just like pounding whiskey and it yeah. kept his body so warm yes. in the ocean that it kept him alive. Yeah, yeah I guess we yeah, talked yeah, about yeah, the same yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Uh, lesson learned. Lesson learned. <laughs> I know. I know. If you're ever on a singing <laughs> ship, you drink a lot of whiskey. If you're ever on a ship, drink whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> and so what is your like non-podcast related, uh-huh. your go-to cocktail or drink? My go-to is always something that's cheap and easy. So while I love our like fancy cocktails that we've put together, my go-to is always like a margarita because like a margarita by itself is so easy to make, but especially if you have the margarita mix. <laughs> I know that's really lame for a podcast that we put together these really decadent, fancy cocktails at times, but I love an easy, cheap one. Yeah. And then um, my personal go-to is some type of whiskey, usually mixed with like a lemonade or lemon. Like whiskey sour was my go-to when I was in college, Mm -hmm. 100%. But my favorite so not necessarily my go-to but my favorite drink is so much bougier than that it's um a florentine fizz and it's made up um it was actually we found it from one of the episodes that we did um on leonardo da vinci i think Mm -hmm. and it's actually pomegranate juice elderflower liqueur aka the juice of the gods it's so good (laughs) um Prosecco, which is like Italian champagne, essentially, and then limoncello. And guys, I cannot express how much this drink has changed me. This is the twelfth <laughs> time I've heard about this drink. I so. I can't stop talking about it. it. I think we did it in like season three, and it's now we're doing going into season seven. Like I can't stop talking. It's my favorite drink. <laughs> I you guys like will have to try it. it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have. I have all of those ingredients. Do you really? So. Oh, it's so good. You're killing it in the uh, cocktail game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Laura's our bartender. <laughs> I know. I've seen Laura. I've watched some of your videos where you you're making cocktails and you always just pull them off of your cocktail cart. Yeah, <laughs> very fun. Like Vanessa, Vanessa and I walked into a, a liquor store the other day, and she was buying something for her house, and I was like, "Oh, you know what? I need this, and I need like I just bought Love something. It. I didn't need it for that day. I was just like, have just it, need to restock." It. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and just alcohol. I like nor. Was was it like maraschino alcohol liqueur? Maraschino liqueur. I don't even. Yeah, I love this. (laughs) I was like, I'm just getting whiskey. I don't. I don't. (laughs) I'm getting that and margarita premix. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Okay, so we have one more question we want to ask you before we roll into tonight's stories. If you could invite any woman, I guess we can ask this. You can choose to answer individually or separately. Mm-hmm. But if you could invite any woman, dead or alive, out for drinks, who would it be and why? So you sent over this question a couple of days ago, which I appreciate <laughs> because it gave me a lot of time to reflect. Because truly, I would like to have a 20-person mm-hmm. drinks party for all the women in history that I would like to invite to mm-hmm. dinner. Uh, but if I had to settle on one, I think I would choose Princess Diana because I absolutely adore her. And I would just really love to take her 
out for a drink and have her spill all the tea. Yeah. <laughs> great choice. Great choice. I feel like that's really um, timely as well, since the Meghan Markle interview just came out a yep. few weeks, like a week or so ago. So. Pretty relevant. Yeah. Did I say relevant? Yeah. I, I thought it like, and then I just have to um, jump on the same bandwagon. I don't, I, there's too many. I can't shoot. But if I had to choose just, just one, I guess it's going to be Princess Di more because I think she is such a inspirational person, not just the tea. Obviously, I want to know the tea. I want to know all the the dirty secrets. But um, so less about the drama, more to discuss her like humanitarian work and her kindness and all that kind of stuff. That's so <laughs> nice, <you>. right? <laughs> I'm like, but tell me more about Camilla. <laughs> tell me more. I actually, I recently similarly said for for the tea reason, um, Marilyn Monroe. I was like, love oh him. man, would yeah. love to have a drink with her because she'd have so much gossip. Especially about the Kennedys. Yeah. Bring it on. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't remember what my answer was last time we asked this question. I, it changes daily. Yeah, it was yeah, like, every time. It was yeah. definitely like way better than my I want gossip answer. I, actually, I think I might have said like Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, like I picked someone who was like, I don't know, it'll be an interesting drink, but not tea spilling. Although she probably has some tea. I'm sure she has the tea. I'll be honest. The one that I almost said was Kristen Bell. I don't know why. I have like a girl crush on her. Like I just want to be her friend and she's so sweet. Yeah. And And she's a badass woman. And she's badass and has, you know, there's something about her. I'm just like, I want to be your friend, please. (laughs) (laughs) I think you said RBG once too, which Mm. is on brand Uh, for you. I saw you guys went to that. You saw her statue. Yes. That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, they just unveiled it. And this was actually like a statue planned prior to her passing away. So she okayed the artwork and like Mm -hmm. the pic like everything. And then obviously she passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Um wow. They are apparently putting another RBG statue in Brooklyn. Really? That is Mm -hmm. like, yeah, in memoriam since she's passed away. Very cool. But this one was planned. I want to go to while ago. so bad. I know we haven't been since 2017 or 18. Yeah. 17. 17. I know. We say that it's like, a- oh yeah, the last time we went, that's the only time I've been to New York. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to sound cooler. Okay. Thanks for outing us. <laughs> yeah. Oh we, man. We hope you to head are- that way. I was supposed to head to Washington DC this year, but obviously that, or last year, but that didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't really need to say anything more than that. We all just look at each other like, yeah, last yeah. year was the fire. <laughs> you guys are in Northern California, though, right? Yes. So we are about two hours inland of San Francisco. So uh, Sacramento, which is the actually the capital, but nobody knows that. That's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> out, so we're NorCal girls. <laughs> but if you guys ever come this way. Our capital, Sacramento, has some really, really cool bar hopping that you can do. And we're we like that. an hour and a half from Napa and Sonoma. So Ooh. we're like, not even. Sometimes it's like an hour. Maybe. Depends on how fast you're driving. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I only hear about Sacramento or because I, I don't know a lot about it, to mm-hmm. be fair. But um, there's a lot of good true crime that happens in Sacramento. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Literally so much good stuff happens. And, and bad, bad stuff. Bad stuff. Terrible <laughs> thing. 
Yeah. But I feel like a lot of the Sacramento vampire killer. We have the East area rapist. Yeah. We have Richard Ramirez. Uh, The Ruth. No. What's her name? Dorothy Puente. Dorothy Puente. We have only, only in all the serial killers. Yeah. Yep. That's us. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I know about Sacramento. So. <laughs> well, I mean, to I be can't fair, say we're proud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, New York has a lot too, so. Yeah. <laughs> but if you guys ever do come this way, let us know. We'll we'll take you around. It'd be really fun. Yeah. Yes. Same here. Oh yeah. New York. We hope to really okay. soon. Mhm. Yeah. Show you around Rockefeller Center. Uh, we, <laughs> I'm not joking, we spur of the moment when we were there in 2017 or 18, went to 30 Rock and we did like the tour or whatever. And mm-hmm. no joke, it was spur of the moment. We had no plans to do it. It was my favorite part of the whole trip. Yeah. Oh, good. No, it yeah. was it was really really cool, and we were we hardcore did. tourists yeah. with like the headsets. literally headsets that were big <laughs> with our little walk. Yeah, and we did the top of the rock where we you know you go up and you do the view. Great we views, it. great views, so good. Yeah, we'll let you guys know if we head that way. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Um, are we are we ready to tell some stories? So ready. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. So I think I'm kicking it off, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've all likely heard of the time when, during World War II, women were called upon to step out of their common and then really only roles as homemakers and were asked to fill the shoes of the many men who were fighting in the war. They did so by donning coveralls and bandanas and filling jobs that had otherwise been totally dominated by men. And I know what you're all thinking, like, duh, it's Rosie the Riveter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, like, yeah, that's the time I'm talking about here. But uh-huh. I'll, I'll actually be taking a closer look at a different profession taken over by women in the era. So today we'll be taking a short look at the Bessie the Bartender movement. Yay! Yay. So excited. And with- I've, ne- I've never heard of this, so I'm so excited. Yeah, I actually hadn't before I kind of dug into it a little bit yeah. more. So with that, before I go any deeper, I'd like to tie in, because this is what we do on our podcast, I want to tie in a cocktail that we're all drinking today. So I feel like I really have to step up my game for this one, since we're focusing on a bartender movement and all. I hope I don't let the Bessies down. Initially, I was looking at a cocktail called the Bessie and Jesse, but it contains milk. And for anybody who might listen to the Hashtag History podcast, we've done enough milky cocktails to last us the rest of the year, <laughs> a.k.a. one. So, so. Um, Also, I am lactose intolerant, so I appreciate yeah. not doing a milk cocktail. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So instead, I chose the Moonshine Bessie Smash. So this contains Manhattan Moonshine Whiskey, or you can substitute with any other type of bourbon whiskey. It also contains fresh fresh squeezed lemon juice and then also agave syrup which i find very interesting because agave is what they make tequila out of so it's weird to pair it with whiskey so you add all those ingredients to a mixing glass shake it with ice and then you strain it into a rocks glass over ice and you garnish it actually with a sprig of mint which rachel is displaying hers right now (laughs) lovely yeah so i have to be honest in saying i've never heard of the oh wait Let's let's all take a drink before I start and dig in. Cheers, and ladies. And then just let me know Cheers. what you think. Cheers. 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 I like it, and it's a very Laura drink. 
Is it? This is like something yeah. Laura would order at a bar, hands down. For and sure, I like me it as too. Well. Why is it a go-to cocktail for you? So um, much like Leah said, I'm a whiskey drinker. Like if I'm at a bar and I'm just ordering a regular schmegular cocktail, it's going to be like a whiskey ginger ale. Yep, yes, um, 100%. Yeah. You're my girl, So Laura. this is very <laughs> much like my my realm. Although I love a fancy cocktail and I love creating them and making them. There's just something classic about like an old fashioned whiskey sour, whiskey mm-hmm. lemon. Like, Do you have a favorite whiskey? I have to ask you. Um, Like my bar cart always has bullet on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Just like standard can go into anything. I've recently been supporting really hardcore Uncle Nearest Distillery. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. what I'm drinking actually tonight. Um, it is, so it's a female owned distillery in Kentucky. And the story is that Uncle Nearest is the slave that taught Jack Daniels how to brew. Wow. And like his recipes were kind of held on and now this woman has reopened a distillery using Uncle Nearest recipes and they it's just phenomenal whiskey. So oh, I highly cool. recommend. And it's local to New York? No, no, it's in Kentucky. I'm sorry, you said that. We're gonna have to order <laughs> Yeah, we'll have you to order probably that. find it at like a I mean they they go all over. Mm-hmm. Like I just went to my liquor store. Okay. So cool. if you have yeah, a- we'll have to look into yeah. that. My husband's very into trying different new whiskeys that we haven't tried before. So we'll have to try that. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I had never heard of the Bessie the Bartender movement prior to my research for this episode, but it really is a fascinating little segment of World War II and women's history. So I'm excited to dig into it a little more. So sit back. Sip your drinks, and I'll tell you a little tale of discrimination and sexism. Woo! Woo! (laughs) So, (laughs) So prior to World War II, it was pretty uncommon to see a woman behind the bar. In the 1895 census, only 147 of the nearly 56,000 professional bartenders listed nationwide were female. I did the math. That is less than 1%. It's about 0.25%. Wow. Why is this? Well, prior to the 20th century, bars were considered super seedy institutions, like picture saloons from Western movies, and you're pretty close to a realistic picture Mm -hmm. of a bar in the 18th and 19th century. But then in came the Roaring Twenties, and suddenly bars could be reputable institutions institutions and establishments with bartenders dressing well and they were trained and they followed specific recipes for drinks but the stigma of seediness if you will and bars not being a proper place for the fairer sex continued to persist on despite that by the late 1930s we know that the prohibition which had dragged on for what i can only imagine to be an insufferable 13 years oh my god oh my god i can't <laughs> every time we talk about prohibition i'm like i, I can't I imagine can't, my heart I can't. hurts yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it finally ended and bar rooms were open for business but women weren't necessarily welcome it should be noted that at this time women were often not even permitted in the bar rooms as patrons there were some bars that had reserved sections or sometimes even like an area 
outside the back door of the bar specifically for women but overall the idea of seeing a woman in the bar let alone behind one was still really unusual wow so it's the same boring old hogwash as to like why why was this happening They were considered dens of vice, and by keeping women far, far away, men were, quote, protecting their virtue or avoiding the risk of sexual temptation and ruined reputation of women patrons. I have to note for those that this is a podcast, right? So it's an audio platform. Yeah. Every woman in this group right now has their eyebrows up and they're shaking Shaking their their heads. heads. (laughs) I was literally about to say the same thing. I was like, I just need everyone to know that we have a look of disgust on our (laughs) Every last one of us. Yeah. Some even went so far as to say that women were literally incapable of mixing a drink correctly, which is just laughable to me. I can't imagine living in a a reality where I think half of the population is so useless they can't even mix a drink. And let's be honest, Leah and I have mixed at least four cocktails today. Yeah. Successfully. (laughs) But it was the 30s. Yay, misogyny. And as the Troy Record once wrote, quote, who wants the hand that rocks the cradle mixing whiskey sours? No. Oh. No. Yeah. It's a legit quote there. For you. So, um, Rachel's face I, right now? I do. I want it. Like, yeah. that was my, that I, was literally my next line is like, uh, I do. Thank you. I'll take any hands mixing a whiskey sour for me. Thank you. <laughs> I will take all the hands. Um, I feel like there are a few times in life where I don't have anything to say and I don't have anything to say. Yeah. 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 I have no excuse for it. It was the 1930s. I don't know. I don't know. That was an excuse. I guess that was an excuse. That was just laying context. (laughs) (laughs) So fast forward a little bit to 1939, when a group of forward thinking women in Brooklyn organized the Barmaids Local 101 in in anticipation of post-war fallout. At this point, the U.S. wasn't officially in the war, but it was pretty clear that it was coming. And these trailblazing gals managed to insert themselves into the then well-guarded liquor industry by conceding to a few, some more ridiculous than others, social norms to placate those trying to shut them down. For instance, they vowed not to work past midnight or give out their last names to male patrons, which actually that one I'm okay with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and keep in mind, this was even before the U.S. involvement in World War II. So these women were really trailblazers. Mm-hmm. We all know what happens next. On December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese and thus began the U.S.'s official involvement in, in the World War. And with it went all of our men. We know that many women stepped up in workplaces that their men had otherwise filled before, like factories, shipyards, and apparently bars. Who's going to mix drinks if there's no men? (laughs) (laughs) In stepped the women bartenders of the 1940s, a.k.a. Bessie the Bartender. By 1945, there were a thousand women bartenders in New York alone. Killing it. Yeah. A wartime barmaid named Loretta told the Brooklyn Eagle, a woman has to make a living and what's wrong with bartending? During the war, it was patriotic for us to work. Love that. 
But then the war ended and the fellas returned from overseas expecting to find both their jobs and their wives exactly as they left them. Most women complied and just stepped back into their previous roles, but some fought back, refusing to give up the lucrative and respected profession that had treated them so kindly through their years of bartending. Yes. Unfortunately, yet unsurprisingly, legal motions ended up backing the cries for male-only bartenders, and male-only bartending unions cropped up nationwide. This is the part where you all can start getting heated, because I will. Yeah. Yeah, I feel, like, I feel it coming. I can, I can start, yeah. Yeah, you can start now. <laughs> In 1945, Michigan passed a law making it illegal for women to mix drinks unless they were directly related to the bar's male proprietor. And I think your Rachel's story is going to dig into that a little more. No. So, yeah. Yes. So three it's years. It's about to get a lot worse. Yeah. Three years after that, several women tried challenging that law in Michigan, um, taking the fight to the Supreme Court, but the law was upheld. Then Justice Felix Frankfurter wrote, Michigan could beyond question forbid all women from working behind a bar since the line they, the Michigan legislators, drew um, is not without basis in reason. We cannot give ear to the suggestion that real impulse behind the legislation was an unchivalrous desire of male bartenders to try to monopolize the calling, end quote. That wasn't my words. <laughs> I don't want to take... <laughs> no, but we can call it sexist AF. Yeah, yeah. This Supreme Court ruling squashed any hope of similar challenges nationwide in a handful of other states, so... By the 1960s, more than half of the country's Bessies were forced to turn in their jiggers as 26 states successfully passed similar laws banning women from bartending. Ugh. So disappointing. I don't yeah. even know how to convey with words. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. upsetting that, that is, like this whole yeah. thing is. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, though, this is where things get a little better. Okay. <laughs> the, Before I talk. Yeah. Before my heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eventually, the powers of unions waned and more bars with, like, attached restaurants began to hire women as it was more socially acceptable for women to tend bar in a place that primarily served food. Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, along with 1964 Equal Pay Act, ushered in even bigger changes as they gave women legal precedent to challenge discriminatory laws. And overall, people just started ignoring or overlooking or even skirting the laws that were set in place after World War II banning women from bartending. In the late 60s, a titillating, no pun intended, you'll see why, <laughs> California case also <laughs> offers some changes to the discriminatory practice because a topless bar owner, you get it, titillating? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he began also allowing his dancers to mix and serve drinks topless. Again, skirting that law by saying they were hired as dancers, not bartenders. So I guess California's Alcoholic Beverage Control Agency took this matter. Um, they really didn't like it. They, they yeah. took offense. And then they took this matter to the state Supreme Court, stating that male bartenders must be present to preserve order and protect patrons. But the court argued that this statement ignored a modern day reality, which like, hello, California Supreme Court in the 1960s. Woot woot. <laughs> <laughs> 
they said, and this is an exact quote, today, most bars, unlike the saloons of the Old West, are relatively quiet, orderly, and respectable places patronized by both men and women. Even if they were not, many bars employ bouncers whose sole job is to keep order. The state also argued that the statute was in place to protect women from being injured by drunk customers and that women didn't have the strength to do the job. And the court, like, you know, responded by saying, it is difficult to believe that women working behind the bar would be more subject to such dangers than the cocktail waitresses who are now permitted to work among the customers. Yes. So that's like, they just called total bullshit. Like, sorry. There, there's women who are now out walking among the patrons, but they're they're fine. It's the people behind the bar. Right. It's the women that actually have some authority and some power that are the ones that are in trouble. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Total bullshit. <laughs> they continued saying women as a class are as capable as men of mixing drinks and are permitted to do so in many other states. The technical capability of women are not, however, at issue right now. Such perils cannot serve as the basis for a blanket statewide statutory prohibition against the employment of women bartenders. Boom. Mic drop. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because of cases like this, and thanks to Title VII and the Equal Pay Act of the mid-60s, Bessies were back in business. According to Thrillist.com, in 1970, 21.2% of bartenders were female. By 1980, the numbers had more than doubled to 40%. By 1990, women made up 52%. And today, it's 60% and climbing. Yeah. It's definitely got to be the majority now. Yeah. So cheers to that. Cheers to the Bessies. Cheers. And cheers because I, a woman, made a bum-ass drink that I need to finish now that I'm done talking. Yay! <laughs> okay, so thank you for that. Yeah. Now, in the wake of the Bessie the Bartender movement, many women faced legal challenges. One particular woman was Valentine Gosart, which can we just talk about that name? Valentine Gosart. Beautiful. Yeah, it is. Sounds like a fancy lady. Totally. She's a badass. <laughs> <laughs> she operated a bar in Dearborn, Michigan. At this time, women were essentially not allowed to own a bar in cities with a population of more than 50,000. The exact language of Section 19A of Act 133 of the Public Acts of Michigan in 1945 said that... Wait, one more time? No, just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. can you say that over again? (laughs) I was taking notes and I missed some letters. (laughs) Yeah, I said it a little too fast. (laughs) This act said that, here's the quote, bartenders are required to be licensed in all cities having a population of 50,000 or more, but no female may be licensed unless she be the wife or the daughter of the male owner of a licensed liquor establishment. So this is super shitty. (laughs) On November 20th, 1947, Gosar and her daughter went before the district court of Detroit to challenge this law. They argued that this law discriminated against women, bar owners, and women bartenders and denied women equal protections. The court ended up ruling that the state law did not violate the equal protections provided under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, so Gosar appealed the matter to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So, 
Let's back it up a bit and do a deep dive into the 14th Amendment and its history. The 14th Amendment. Are you excited? <laughs> I'm, Which, I'm ready. I'm this ready. Is, Let's go. Like, yay. This is Let a, me grab my drink. <laughs> this is a side note, but there is a more recent Netflix documentary that Will Smith um, narrates about the 14th Amendment, and it's Bomb AF. Oh. Okay. It's really good, and for anyone that isn't as nerdy as, like, us, you. or like Laura and I, it sounds like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, like, a really good documentary okay. to give some history on the 14th Amendment. So if anyone wants to hear Will Smith talk about the 14th Amendment, Netflix. <laughs> anyway, the 14th Amendment, it reads that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States that no state shall make or enforce any law, which shall abridge the privileges of immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction, the equal protection of the laws. It was ratified in 1868 during the Reconstruction era, primarily in an effort to ensure that formerly enslaved people were granted the same rights as any other American citizen. The 14th Amendment has been used to argue some very well-known cases, such as Plessy versus Ferguson, of course, which stated that racially segregated public facilities are, by definition, not equal. Brown versus Board of Education would finally overturn the separate but equal decision made in the Plessy matter. Loving versus Virginia, Roe v. Wade, all of these are just some of the other well-known examples that have used the 14th Amendment to argue their case. So it only makes sense, right, that the 14th Amendment, this says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens and cannot be deprived of the equal protections of the law would also apply to women's equal rights too, right? Mm. Despite this argument, the district <laughs> court, <laughs> we're all like, and what's the but? <laughs> yeah. Despite this argument, the district attorney would not rule in favor of Gosar and other female bartenders. In fact, the decision of the court was that the state of Michigan had the right to forbid women from working as bartenders because bartenders are naturally, inherently exposed to more dangerous situations. And therefore, women must but be protected. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> you know, and I think, I think we have to take pause because sure, in let's be honest, in bars, people are drunk. People but, can be well. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Wait, I'm getting there. I'm getting where you want to go. Okay. Bars can be in some arenas. Like people are kind of intoxicated. Maybe the situation is a little more heated than in others. However, mm -hmm. where I'm going with this is a woman can be in a lit area. Mm -hmm. She can be speaking on her phone. She can be wearing brightly colored clothing, and she can choose to be there. But what I'm saying is she can be walking down the street and still be in danger. danger. Yeah. 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 So that's where I'm, what I'm saying is like, yes, sure. Bars. I get what you're saying that like some people are intoxicated. Maybe it puts you in kind of these compromising scenarios. However, a woman that's leaving her nine to five and walking to her car in the parking lot is also in a compromising scenario. And may also encounter an intoxicated person. Like, sure. Yeah, just, right. Like 
they don't just stick to the bars, guys. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying here is that, like, sure, I can get the argument a little bit that, like, bars, in one sense, like, maybe there's a heightened sense of danger. However, hoopla, if you will. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) However, a woman that works nine to five at an office job and then walks to her car at the end of the day is in the same amount of same amount of danger. Yeah. Well, like I, I live on a block with tons of bars. So if I come home at night, even after work, sometimes if I work late, I'm walking by tons of bars with intoxicated people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how are you more at risk than the person working behind the bar? Right. Serving drinks. Right. Absolutely. So they argued, the state of Michigan argued that bars are more inherently exposed to more dangerous situations and therefore women must be protected by their husbands or fathers in these situations. Ugh. Hogwash. 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 <laughs> they did not feel that the plaintiffs had provided a good enough argument to provide that the current Michigan laws were discriminatory against women and that they limited women's rights and opportunities. Gosart's attorney and David Dow said, uh, fuck that. And <laughs> in those words. Yeah. And she appealed the case to the Supreme Court. Gosart's attorney would become the first person ever to argue to the Supreme Court that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. Once again, the plaintiffs lost something absolutely alarming to me that comes from the court's opinion in this matter was that the constitution, this is a quote, does not require legislatures to reflect sociological insight or shifting social standards. I find this absolutely outrageous. Yeah. If the constitution, yeah. yeah, If if the constitution does not allow for this, then the constitution must be amended. Yeah. That's (laughs) exactly. I mean, that's, that's a huge argument right now, right? The right to bear arms. Well, isn't the essence of humankind that we were always learning and growing and shifting with social standards. I mean, that was the intentions of the original founding fathers. fathers. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the argument of the court at this time that, uh, Actually, the Constitution doesn't say that we have to mold to Verbatim, social standards. it does not say that. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, God. It would I, not I, be. I don't even know what to say. I know. <laughs> we're all just sitting here with our mouths dropped, our eyebrows up, and no words. <laughs> it would not be until 1971. 1971, people. Mm-hmm. In the Reed versus Reed matter, that real change would occur. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. Did you know that like 19, the 1970s... To us, how we think of the 1970s is how, like, um, Gen Z thinks of the 1990s now. Because it was, like, 30, <laughs> right? Because it was 30 oh, years no. before we were born. Oh, no. That just made my wrinkles deepen. Does everyone have a side part on this? <laughs> yes. yes. All of us have side parts. You did, the mid- <laughs> you did the mid for a little bit. I tried. I tried for a day to do this. The, um, what is it? Center part? Yeah, I couldn't. Mine is kind of close, but it's still a little little side. Yeah, it's pretty close. You could almost pull it off. Almost, yeah. It's close. (laughs) I I have been a teacher for almost a decade, and I had so much anxiety going back to school after remote learning because all I own is skinny jeans, and I teach middle school. (laughs) Yes. I'm like, my my biggest argument against the skinny jeans thing is I'm like, listen, we had to deal with Paris Hilton wearing the low rise jeans. And that was our, that was our idol, you know, not necessarily, but that was our body idol. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. As far as like bigger grows and you get 
high rise. You get high rise, curvy is beautiful kind of stuff. So don't tell me that I can't wear straight skinny jeans. (laughs) And hold on. (laughs) They, like, Gen Z wants to wear wide leg pants. Wait till a rainy day. They're going to realize why you wide leg pants are shitty. (laughs) Yeah. You, You tell me when you can't tuck those those wide leg pants <laughs> into your boots. your boots, you talk come and talk to me. Because they're gonna start <laughs> lopping up the side of your the side of your pants. All of this. And that's coming from a California girl where we get rain like three times a year. Okay. <laughs> but yes, but I I appreciate what you say that like this next generation gets the high rises, the loose jeans. Yeah. I had to squeeze my ass into like a low, low riders. riders. Yes. Oh my God. We have trauma from it. So don't actual judge trauma. us. That's all I have to say. There's actual trauma. <laughs> from my puppet top hanging over my low rise jeans. <laughs> sitting in low rise jeans, sitting in low rise oh, jeans, having to like them. pull them up. Always yeah. checking the butt crack. Yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay, guys. Let's head back. Yeah, sorry. Back in, back in. 14th Amendment, go. (laughs) So, headed back to 1971. In the Reed versus Reed matter, there was a woman named Sally Reed whose son had passed away before naming an executor for his estate. She sued when an Idaho law essentially said that her husband, who was estranged, had nothing to do with their kid, should be automatically selected as the executor. To quote it directly, this particular Idaho code states that males must be preferred to females when it comes to appointing executors of estates. This makes, I'm sorry, I'm going to make it, I'm going to bring it back to like social media right now. Britney Spears, free Britney. (laughs) Britney. (laughs) Although she's still rocking that low rise jean look. Yeah, she She really really is. is. And you know what else she's still rocking are the like smoking. I I wouldn't wouldn't say she's rocking it. (laughs) (laughs) boom yeah i would say it's not working well Uh, i would say i have not put eyeliner under since i was about 15 i've done eyeshadow under dark eyeshadow just Mm -hmm. a little less a little less is more Brittany, continue yeah sorry 71 we're we're at 71 (laughs) Brittany's listening to this okay she'll definitely take our advice now the idaho Code states that males are supposed to be preferred to females when it comes to appointing executors of estates. The Supreme Court ended up ruling that the 14th Amendment did indeed prohibit unequal treatment based on sex. This would be the very first U.S. Supreme Court decision to say that the 14th Amendment does indeed apply equal protections under the law, regardless of gender. This is huge. Mm -hmm. And again, my friends, we're talking 1971 here. Mm -hmm. So, Laura guess who would write the brief for the read versus read decision just guess uh, it's it's gonna be oh the ruth bader ginsburg you got it girlfriend okay i was like you got it, girl. it has to be and this was actually <laughs> while she was working as a law professor so not even when she was at the at the supreme court yet nice but she well yeah it's when it's that's what the basis of sex movie is all about this mm-hmm. case isn't it? or this yep this That's movement. where the term comes from. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And this would actually be the beginnings of RBG's incredible work to advance the rights of women. Mm -hmm. So Reed versus Reed would change women's rights forever. Following the Reed versus Reed ruling, literal hundreds upon hundreds of laws would be changed across the country. And finally, more than 100 years after the passage of the 14th Amendment, more than 15 years after women achieved the right to vote, and more than 20 years after Valentine Gosart first brought her case to the Michigan courts, it was officially ruled nationwide that a woman could not be prohibited on the basis of sex from owning her own bar. Mm. Yes! Round of applause. Yeah. That's all we got for you, ladies. That was amazing. I feel like... I feel like this whole story with story and cocktail were so up your alley, Laura. It's yeah. Women's rights. I have to say, I I finished the cocktail already. And I did. I'm going to make another one when we're done. Mm -hmm. It was really good. It was really good. That's right up my alley. Oh yeah. Three ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. Mm. Simple. Love it. Yeah. We talked before we came on here about just how much we had learned about this movement. Mm-hmm. There was a lot here that we didn't know beforehand. I never, yeah. never heard of Bessie the bartender or Valentine. Yep. Like nothing. It, it spoke to our feminist vibes. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Girl, well, thank power. you guys. <laughs> My story today has some, some similar tones to it. Uh, it is also about a group of women and also involves misogyny and sexism. So, <laughs> yay! Love it, slash hate it. <laughs> okay, so I did. I did say that uh, my story has has to do with beer, so that everyone could drink a beer. Yes. Except that I don't drink. I don't drink beer. So <laughs> I don't really either. But we're split, we're gonna split one. It's an eight oh five. It's simple. Nice. I I'm not going to be joining. <laughs> but Laura, but Laura is, and she has a beautiful one. Yeah, Look how beautiful that is! And you guys, it's like pink. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous, red. I guess. Is it a beer you think I would like? Does it taste fruity? I Those mean, are really the only beers I like too. I, we we have a lot of breweries here in Sacramento, and honestly, the only ones I I like are the fruity ones. And I think I've evolved a little bit just because my husband likes beer. I mean, so does mine. Why do you think I have an 805 in the fridge? Good point. I guess I've I've uh, given into his beer tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> Laura has been trying to convince me to come a beer drinker since we met. I feel like <laughs> I, I don't know what to say, Vanessa. In that, like, there's one part of me that's like, "You do you, girl. We don't all have to like beer. Beer is gross. Beer is gross. False. But then there's also the side of me that's like. My palate has completely changed in the last few years, and you may end up becoming a beer lover. You never know. I like beer. Okay, so this is not the most pleasant story, but the reason I hate beer is because in college, Mm. the first time I got super drunk. Say no more. Yeah. I mean, say more, but. (laughs) Yeah. No, the first time. But we understand. Yeah. Already. Yeah. um, The last thing I drank was a Bud Light, which I know is a disgusting beer, but it was college. And a Bud um, Light Lime, because that makes it semi-okay. It wasn't. It was just a regular Bud Light. Okay. Um, And I was very sick afterwards, and the only thing I could taste coming up was the beer. And so ever since (laughs) then, I'm like scarred. I can't do it. I actually was just telling my husband the other day that 
I had a friend that moved out really early. She was like 17, 18 when she moved out. And so she started having like college frat parties when she was like 17, 18. So I attended many of these parties, but I was telling him I never actually got drunk at these parties because all they ever had was like Bud Light. Yeah. And I was not interested. So like, I was cool to hang out at the party and hang out with people, but I never got drunk because like gross. Yeah. 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 That was probably smart. What I I will say is like, I went out into my kitchen to get us a beer to split. And my husband looked at me like, I like, why are you getting a beer? Because it's so unusual for me. Like, so I was not a beer drinker. And then I moved to New York and I couldn't afford alcohol. Mm. So like I could only afford beer and I am now like a beer snob. Yeah. I um, have no understanding, but a ton of empathy for living in New York and having to pay the rent that you're paying. So (laughs) much love. And I I will say going back to what we said at the very beginning, Laura and Vanessa, when you come and visit us this way, we have a lot of awesome breweries and Laura, you will love it. Yes. And Vanessa, they have bomb ass, ciders yeah for you mm-hmm. amazing I love a cider <laughs> yeah <Me too. laughs> um okay so specifically my story today is about a trade that women were involved with during the early days of the beer industry the alewife trade mm. um and a small spoiler for later in my story but the reason that I like kind of got pulled into the story is because it's rumored that the alewives were inspiration for what we today view as witches in like fairy tale and folklore. I just saw a TikTok about this. I'm so excited. Oh my God. <laughs> we literally yeah. just talked about this yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I want to find that. Okay. Yeah. And of course, obviously, the reason for this is because sexism. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Um, As Laura touched on in her origin story, which is from episode one of the season, so you guys would not have heard it, but by the time this episode comes out, it'll be out. Um, (laughs) But as she mentioned, although today beer, the beer industry is thought of as kind of like a male dominated industry, um, women were actually among the first brewers in Egypt, Mesopotamia, Samaria, and eventually in Europe and North America. The oldest known beer recipe actually comes from a Sumerian hymn uh, to the goddess of beer. I think it's Ninkazi. Laura, yep. do you remember? Yeah, Ninkazi. But alewives in particular are actually found a little bit later in history um, in medieval England. So... Some things that are important to kind of keep in mind during this time period is that because of hygiene and unsanitary conditions, beer was often safer to drink than water. Because of the fermentation process, it created a sterile drink for people. Yeah. I love that. I support that. <laughs> we we well, talked about that in, um, what was it? Like number two. No, what was it? Um, Roanoke. We talked about the Roanoke colony here in uh-huh. um, the U.S. And we talked about how... We, we actually drank mead that my roommate at the time made, like he made himself. Ooh. And we, that was our drink, our cocktail for the episode. And we talked about how, yeah, like it was safer to drink. that was safer to yeah. drink. That and beer was safer to drink than well, water. Well, and don't they always, you've traveled to Europe more than I have. Like it's cheaper to get a beer than a glass of water. I mean, I wouldn't 100%. say cheaper, but yeah, you have to pay for water. Yeah. Well, but sometimes depending on the country, it is cheaper. Beer yeah. is yeah. cheaper than water. Mm-hmm. Yeah wild i would be spending so much more money than you laura if we traveled together <laughs> and i <Let's> would go. not 
Another important note is that hops, which of course are used in beers today and work as a preservative, had not been introduced to the beer industry at this time. Um, so that meant that the ale or beer spoils very quickly. Um, constant production was needed. And as a result, mass production and distribution weren't really possible. So because of these two things, both married and unmarried women tended to brew beer in their home kitchens. Even upper class wives would often participate in ale making, of course, in like more of a supervisor role um, over their female servants. And it, brewing at that time was considered domestic. It was part of the kitchen chores and like historically known as women's work because it was something that was done while the men were out earning money, of course. So it was kind of like in line with butter churning or bread baking. Mm -hmm. It was a very time consuming process, though. And according to an article I read in Atlas Obscura, a typical medieval family of five might have needed like nine gallons of beer a week. So they const they just constantly had to make some. Um, yeah, because <laughs> the kids would drink it too because it was yeah. safer. Yeah. yeah. And so women within communities began to work together to share the workload. So one woman, um, often with the help of her children, would make extra ale every week and then sell it to the other households. And as that system grew, women began to make even more beer on top of that in like a professional capacity because they were like, oh, wait, we can make money. Mm. So and that's when the men come in. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 of course. Sure. Money. When women start to have a little bit wait, of power and authority. Like, wait, yeah. you mentioned money? Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> of course. But women began to run local pubs and makeshift bars out of their own homes. Um, and this is where the term alewife comes from. It basically just means a woman who keeps an alehouse and referred to any woman who brewed beer for profit. Other terms that were used to describe them were brewsters, brewess, and later beer witch. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's all coming full circle because like I said, Leah and I were literally just talking about this yesterday because of a TikTok video she saw yeah. about... Like all, like the origin all, of witches. all the tropes of witches can be traced yeah. back to like beer makers. Yeah. Uh, I hope my phone is listening to me right now and it comes up on my TikTok. Yeah. I you know, <laughs> I'll try to I, find I didn't, it. I'll try. Okay. I didn't put two and two together. There's a brand new beer bar in Brooklyn called Beer Witch. And it 100% oh my God. has I, to come from this. I actually okay. looked at that website for information because they had a, I, a little information page. I just had a conversation about that bar today with a friend. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So when we, we to travel there. to New York, that's where we're going. Add it to yeah. I will actually be offended <laughs> if the two of you go there without us. Well, you can go there without us. Just make sure if we come to visit that we're also invited. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so becoming an alewife didn't require extensive training or education. Um, it was easy. It was accessible for women to earn money. And that's why a lot of unmarried women often turned to it, because there weren't a lot of options for women to make money back then. But of course, as women continued to make a decent wage, as we said, the sexism came. Mm. Uh, right on <laughs> time. Yes, yes. Men weren't happy about it. Um, and they started to view the alewife industry as tawdry. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, it's like, ooh, too sexy for you. Yeah, yeah. But before we get to like the downfall of that industry, because obviously it is not currently one, I'm going to tell you a little bit about 
the alewives and their whole aesthetic. Like I said at the top of the story, and as we talked about, a lot of historians think that alewives in, inspired modern day witch imagery. Some people don't agree with it, but I do. Um, <laughs> it's spot on. It's yeah. So spot on. Yeah, it really is. So the alewife trade was obviously considered a cottage industry because it was mainly made from women's homes or cottages, self-explanatory. And these are some commonalities that historians say alewives had. So firstly, alewives would often use large cauldrons to boil their grain uh, before allowing the brew to ferment. And also, I read that they would sometimes sell the beer out of these cauldrons. Alewives also often had cats running around their cauldrons. Because... I think you might be a witch, Leah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a witch. Yeah. For a pretty simple reason, cats would kill the mice that would try to eat the grains that they used to make the ale. Another commonality is that in order to stand out on a crowded street at the market um, and to signal from a distance that they were selling ale, yep, Leah just made the hand gesture, they would wear a tall black hat. Love it. Yes. Sound familiar? I'm going to send you this TikTok because this is like spot on exactly yes. what you said. Oh, man. I don't want any I'm like thoughts. so excited that something yeah. on TikTok is like, it's like full circle, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> See, Laura, we should make these many TikToks. Okay. <laughs> you should. So, I haven't delved into the TikTok yet, but Leah's in it. Oh, I'm fully. She's in deep. I'm in deep. Oh, I am too, Leah. I can't. It takes up yeah. hours of my time. Yeah. I just, I won't there, even notice. I won't even notice. I'll yeah, be like, if, two hours? If there's a free hour, a free moment of my time, it will be spent watching TikToks. Yeah. I there's don't no make question. any. No. I oh, them. I've never I've posted a thing a while. No. <laughs> Although we did once. We tried. Do a dance. We, we, we didn't try to make a tip talk. We just we just did one of the dances. It didn't turn out well. I won't. It, it was never posted. I'll just say that. <laughs> we actually have a friend, a friend who is uh, semi TikTok famous, and I just like I, her name is Ashley Sondland. I don't know what her at is. Do you, Laura? Uh, I can look it up real quick. But she's at like almost half a million followers, and I'm like, wow. I can't imagine. Having that many people. Yeah. No. Yeah. Mm -mm. She, no, I get um, nervous about the amount of people that are following us on hashtag history. I she is my favorite. And she, I follow her. Uh, she's the first thing that pops up. I follow uh, her on Instagram. Deanna Giletti. She's in New York. Oh my God, I too. love her. Oh my I god. Love I love her. We've never <laughs> talked about this. I don't have I don't have TikTok, but I have follow her on Instagram on and Reels, I'm obsessed with yeah. her and she has like a podcast and I listen to the podcast. I fucking love her. Yeah. She's, she's my, fucking she's amazing. my spirit animal. I love, I fucking <laughs> love her. Well, she lives in New York. So yes. now when you guys visit and be like, can you yes. please do lunch? I'm going to tell her that like there are four of us badass <laughs> bitches. <laughs> Rocking the history podcast world. And we fucking came from California to fucking meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, ta da! Ooh, ta -da. <laughs> I actually, to be honest, so you guys have listened to our podcast before. You know our rate. We rate our cocktails ten out of ten. Yeah. The last few times we've rated cocktails, I've thought of her like it's a ten out of ten. I had to. Neither of us mentioned it because I didn't know you watched. I didn't her. know you did either. I'm obsessed with her. I, what I a moment! Love her. 
I'm yeah. so glad only, we got to witness that. Connection. Yeah, only here on top, on top of the wrist, like we're uh... <laughs> all secrets come out. Mm. Laura actually showed her. She was like, "This is gonna seem out of context, but you have to look at this girl's TikToks." And I like, <laughs> I got so hooked. She's the best. She's fantastic. She's beautiful. She's studied. Mm-hmm. I'm just laughing at the fact that we both propped ourselves up on our own legs. <laughs> okay, sorry guys. We just had to talk about her for a minute because she's a badass bitch. Yeah, Deanna, she really I love is. you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Witches and their tall black hats, or sorry, yes. Bruce, Brewsters and their tall black hats. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, okay. So besides that, if they were selling ale from their own homes instead of like the marketplace, they would signal that they had a fresh batch by hanging an ale stake above their home. Um, and an ale stake was a pole with twigs attached. Some say that they would just use a broomstick um, and they would lean it against their door frame because broomsticks were a symbol of domestic trade. So we got a broomstick, we got a cat, we got a black hat, we got a cauldron. We got all the things. All we the got all, all the things. Are we labeling um, like a Halloween costume here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, if I ever wear a witch's costume on Halloween, I'll be like, no, I'm a Brewster. <laughs> Sorry, you're, you're incorrect. <laughs> Work! <laughs> a couple of other things to point out. Like I said, single women, um, including widowed or husbandless women, often participated in the alewife trade. And sadly, that in itself was taboo, you know, to not, not have a husband. Um, <gasps> scandalous. <laughs> and if a man drank too much beer and lost control or acted out of character... I mean, like, clearly they were under the influence of, like, a magical potion. Well, obviously. (laughs) But like I said, there are some historians that don't think there's definitive proof that alewives and witches are associated. I I don't know how. It's Um, so spot on. I can't. And then it's like, it's the, okay, ooh, here's these women that are making money and that I no longer want to make money because I want to make money. Witch. Yeah. yeah. Like, it yes. just, it's so spot on. It really is. And they were making delicious potions. Like- they were. In their, in their cauldrons. In their cauldrons. A woman named Dr. Christina Wade argued that during the later Middle Ages, when Brewsters were wearing these tall hats, witches weren't yet associated with tall pointy hats. And I'm like, yeah, because it came from them. Like, I don't get that argument. But anyway, some people say that a bunch of people working from their own homes couldn't collectively agree that tall hats and broomsticks would be used as a form of marketing. But I argue that word spreads. So if it worked for someone and they pass it on and then they pass it on. Yeah. I think it That's easily like, could get I just around. wanted to point out that all of us knew who Deanna Gillespie Gil- yes. is, but not, none of us have said anything to each other. Even mm-hmm. Leah and I that talk about literally everything haven't had yeah. this conversation like, before. We, we talk about our bowel movements with each other like we still have we never mentioned sorry tmi but like really let's be real (laughs) and we haven't mentioned that we knew you know this this social media influencer (laughs) so i feel 
even closer to you. I know. Um, <laughs> so it's not, it's not that hard to imagine. Like you mentioned just your neighbor, hey, I'm wearing a tall hat so people can see me in the market. And then they do the same thing or yeah. they recommend to the other brewer that they know that they do the same thing in the market. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I think. So that's I disagree with example. Yeah, I disagree with these people that that don't think this. Yeah, yeah. So a popular ale life uh, was named Mother Luce or Louise. It's written differently in different places. But I'm going to show you a picture of her. I hope this works. Can you see her? Yeah. Yes. That's a witch. Yeah, yeah. That's that's her. Um, that collar though. It it, it looks yeah. pretty witchy to me. Like I. Again, I can't understand the people that don't see the correlation. Yeah. Um, but she was known for brewing excellent beer in the 17th century. Um, I couldn't really find a lot about her. Literally, every time I Googled her, just her picture would come up constantly. So that's why I wanted to show it. If anyone does know her story, please, please let us know. But I just wanted to bring her up for, for that picture, which we will post on social media, of course. So kind of back to why these alewives became tawdry and witchy, there were a few factors. So to start with, around 1000 AD, monasteries began to brew beer throughout Europe. So this not only began to like steadily increase the production of beer, but it also increased the esteem of the profession. Mm -hmm. But it really wasn't until after the Black Plague when women in the beer industry would start to suffer. So firstly, men besides monks were getting involved because they they saw the money um, and they were able to create larger operations simply because they had more access to capital and sadly were more well respected right mm -hmm. than women they even began to create guilds and trade associations for brewers and on top of that beer started to become not only a necessity you know instead of water but also public alehouses began to rise in popularity as a place for indulgence and social gathering, more akin to what we see today. And most importantly, around the 16th century, these larger operations began to use hops, which I mentioned earlier. So hops extended the shelf life of beer and made wide distribution more possible and easier. And that means that like the tiny batches of ale from the alewives weren't as necessary. And as men began to take over, they of course wanted to get rid of the competition. So alewives began to face rumors that caused irreparable damage to their reputation. In propaganda campaigns against them, um, these working women were called scary, nasty, untrustworthy. Yeah, yeah. They began to be accused of cheating their customers by diluting or Adultering, adulterating their ale uh, with cheaper brews. Some people went as far as saying that the women were full-on tainting their ale, in many cases causing customers to be sick, sometimes on purpose. And because women at home were often known to have a working knowledge of herbs and homemade remedies, rumors began to circulate that they were using that knowledge to their advantage and purposefully hurting their customers, which like why? makes no sense to me like why would right. they do that right it was like their income so it, it just doesn't make sense but no. but of course they said this right yeah. uh, people even went as far as to say that the women were using charms or spells to trick people into buying their beer and yeah, drinking right. too much of it yeah. yeah yeah or maybe it just tasted bomb af yeah or maybe it was just freaking delicious maybe it was fire <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so a woman named Dr. Judith Bennett, who's the author of a book that I need to read called Ale, Brewsters, and Beer in England, Women's Work in the Changing World, 1300 to 1600, said, quote, the ale trade was and is filled with trickery. Poor ale substituted for good pint measures that were just a bit too small, inflated prices, and of course, inebriated customers who found they'd been robbed or cheated. For medieval people, it was easy to link these deceptions deceptions with women not women as daughters of eve more naturally deceptive and wicked than men (gasps) (laughs) by logic any alewife no matter how friendly and open was suspected to be a secret swindler oh yeah we just recently covered the salem witch trials again on our Mm -hmm. podcast and it's just bringing a lot of the connections yeah, back all the because same. a lot of the Puritan society was based on the story of Adam and Eve and that Eve is the one that tempted Adam. And so yep. women are inherently manipulative mm-hmm. and susceptible and more prone to temptation. And so everything you're saying is like really come in full circle. Yeah. We oh, literally yeah. Two nights ago, we talked about this on another podcast. Like it's. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, speaking of all of that and Eve, uh, the church, of course, was not a fan of women brewers. Because why would yeah. they be? Why, why right. would they be? Why? I mean, I, I would say part of the reason is probably because monasteries uh, were also brewers and uh, there was competition, but also just because, of course. And not only did they believe that the alehouses were a playground for the devil, but they thought of alewives as temptresses. Um, who used their wiles to get pious men drunk and spend their money. <laughs> Dr. Bennett also said that in the Middle Ages, the church taught that alewives would be the only people left in hell after Christ freed all the damned. Uh, she said that this was enacted in plays drawn on the walls of parish churches and carved into wood. It was a fate that medieval people imagined with resentful glee. Yeah. It's, it's pretty horrible. There were actually some literary depictions of alewives. Um, there was a poem that was called The Turning of Eleanor Rumming uh, by John Skelton. And Eleanor was a fictional character who ran a pub in 16th century England. The poem says that she produced a parody of a mass while luring men away from church. And apparently later in the story, she's carried off by demons and flung back into the mouth of hell. Oh, my God. Church murals often also depicted alewives as belonging in hell. Uh, There is a 15th century carving of an alewife being thrown into hell in the St. Lawrence Church in Ludlow, England. And besides these depictions, there were even laws put into place, uh, similar to what you guys were talking about, to damage women in this business. So, for example, in 1540, uh, in the city of Chester, they ordered that no woman between the ages of 14 and 40 would be permitted to sell, sell ale. And the reason for this was that they wanted to limit the trade to only women who were below an age or above an age of sexual desirability. Oh, my God. Right, because if you're um, over 40, you're not sexually desirable. Yeah, yeah I find exactly. that extremely offensive. Tell that to Catherine Zeta-Jones. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> she missed the memo, apparently. <laughs> Good. That's extremely um, offensive. It really is. It really is. Oh um, my God. But despite all of that, women did continue to brew at home through the Industrial Revolution. 
But by then, buying beer had just become cheaper and more convenient than home brewing. And then in the 50s and 60s, marketing campaigns, 1950s and 60s, marketing campaigns began to brand beer as a manly drink uh, with ads featuring beer as a way to unwind after work, often showing women serving their suited husbands a bottle of beer after work. So, of course, this kind of showed women as like maybe servers of beer, but not brewers themselves. Thankfully, things have taken a turn again, uh, and women are becoming more active in the beer industry. So this first statistic is a little bit old. So it's from 2014. And at that point, 29% of all brewery workers were women. Um, And then according to craftbeer.com in 2019, the Brewers Association reported that about 7.5% of the staff of reporting breweries employed a female in the brewer role. Um, and female representation among craft brewery employees grew to about 37% um, in the non-production, non-service staff roles. And then lastly, the segment that employs the most women in the brewery service staff is the brewery service staff, which is at 54% in breweries. And I'm sure that that will continue to grow. Um, I've, I feel like I've, as, as we've talked about, I think off podcast, um, Laura went to a female brewery today. So I just feel like... yeah. It, it's, it's growing. Gonna, it's growing. It's coming back. It needs to um, keep going. Go yes. female brewers. Yes. Yeah. But all that is to say that alewives were definitely the inspiration for witches. I definitely. there's like no question in my mind. <laughs> yeah. If you look at yeah. that picture, sure. that is a you know early a witch. A witch. That's a witch. If you ask a five-year-old to draw a witch and then you put it up next to that picture, witch. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. I'm so glad that you covered that because we were just having that conversation. Yeah, it's full circle for us. I know. I got got to find that TikTok. Yeah, I'm going to try to find it for you and send it to you. Okay. I do want to give a quick shout out to a couple of my sources uh, besides Wikipedia, which I did peruse. (laughs) (laughs) atlas obscura and vice um had two really great articles called for centuries alewives dominated the brewing industry by addison nougat and the ale soaked medieval origins of the witch's hat by daniel danielle wada uh i also used an article from hopculture.com by caroline southern um and a little bit on beerandbrewing.com and that's uh that's the alewives nice I want to take your idea, Leah, and dress as a witch for Halloween and be like, no, no, no. And be like, no. Mm -mm. No, no, no. (laughs) Actually, I'm an ale. (laughs) Just all of us just dressed up as ale. Yeah. 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 Wow, this was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us again. This was a really fun episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming. if anyone wants to follow hashtag history, why don't you like share where people can find you, where they can follow you? Yeah. So we're on Instagram. That's kind of where we're post. We post the most yeah, on Instagram. Our main hub. Uh, and we are there at hashtag history underscore podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter, even though we are not very active over there. <laughs> uh, but the handle there is hashtag history underscore. And then you can check out our website where you can find 
um, more about us, our sources, our merchandise, listen to all of our episodes. That's hashtag history dash pod.com. Amazing. You guys are so great at Instagram. Thank really, you. Yeah. Really. It's all Rachel. I, it's all Rachel. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and we too don't really use Twitter. We like, we, we just don't, don't get it. Twitter is so yeah. hard. I'm, I kind of have, I created a Twitter because I heard that might help with like, you know, just creating a greater following outreach. I have not had that experience really. And it's like everything I post on Instagram, you're limited to certain characters over on Mm -hmm. Twitter. And so everything I post on Instagram, I then have to like shrink down for Twitter. And then I just feel like I'm doing twice the work and I give up. Yeah. So agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we are going to post pictures from all the stories and the cocktails we made this week. You can find all of that on Tap on the Wrist social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, although it won't be very relevant, uh, I guess. (laughs) But uh, we are on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. Yes, and you can also email us any story ideas at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. We will definitely be posting the Ale wife witch picture. Are there Bessie the bartender pictures? Oh yeah, I could definitely find a few and send you some. There were some in the okay. articles I was reading about it. Amazing. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll post some of those as well. But uh thank you guys for coming on. This has been so fun. Yeah, thank yeah. you again. And this was great. Yeah. We usually end with a cheers. Uh it'll be virtual and I only have water. I was gonna say I all of the drinks we drank tonight are SPs, so a little mermaid cup. Okay. Yeah. Water. All right. Well, okay. Cheers. Cheers.